Proverbs chapter 22 this morning. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. One more time. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity now to uh, just open your word. I just praise you, Father, for what we've already experienced in this worship service. I thank you for the, uh, the good singing today. I thank you for the fellowship. I thank you, Lord, for the smiling people who are here. And I pray, Lord, now that you will just uh, settle our hearts and uh, help us, Father, to uh, set aside anything that might be uh, distracting us right now. And I pray that we would listen to your word. I pray, Father, you'd fill me with your spirit, that there would be nothing in my life that would hinder my usefulness today. I pray, Father, I'd just disappear, and Lord, you'd speak. And I pray, Father, all of us would be filled with the spirit that we might hear. Just guide us today. Help us today. Teach us today. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We have instituted a few changes in our children's ministries recently, and they are taking place kind of now, but absolutely, definitely taking place as of September the 1st. You've heard us talking about this quite a bit lately, and uh, uh, so that's kind of what we're doing up here with this little break in our series. For the last, for, for starting last week and today and then finishing up next week, we are talking about some of the reasons why we have made some of the changes that we have made. Uh, the changes are not huge, but some of them are, are noticeable. For example, we've changed the age boundaries in our junior church program. It used to go up to 12. We've lowered that down now. Kids 10 and over are now expected to be in the worship service up here with the adults. And the format has changed a little bit. It's, I tried to think of a, of a way to, to describe the changes that we've made. Uh, I would say that the format has changed to be a little bit more teaching-centric and a little bit less entertainment-centric, if that makes any sense. I think that's kind of what we're trying to do. Junior church program is meant to be a junior version of church. It's meant to be something that prepares them for the day that they come up here and join the adults in worshiping here. And although it also has to provide that experience on a level which is appropriate for their age, which means there's going to be some more funzy stuff down there than there is up here, nonetheless it needs to be church. And so that's one of the changes that we've made. On the Sunday school side, we've also made a, a couple of changes, nothing real major there. We have... Glory to God added a class, which is always wonderful. It wasn't that long ago that we had one, and now we're up to four classes for the kids in the junior, uh, junior high class and the teen class and three adult classes, and praise the Lord, God continues to bless them. And so there's been some changes there as well. Well, we started last week, Brother Phil started last week, talking about the why. Why do we need to make any changes to our junior church program? Why do we need to make changes to our children's ministries in general? I mean, after all, they seem to be working. So why do we need to change them? And I won't, uh, I won't pre-re-preach Phil's message. I'll, I'll let you get the, the audio off of online if you want to do that. But uh, one of the things that Phil did mention, I'll just summarize, is that statistically, statistically, we are losing our kids in churches in America. I'm not just talking about here. I'm not at anything I'm saying up here. I'm not just trying to point the finger at this church. Certainly not. But I'm saying statistically, evangelical churches in the United States of America are losing their kids. One of the things Brother Phil brought out last week, and I don't remember the exact statistics, but I'll just say it this way. The vast majority of kids that are being raised in evangelical churches in America, by the time they reach junior high, have already decided they're not interested. And by the time they're outside of the influence of their parents, they're acting on that and leaving the churches 
in droves. Now, I don't know about you, but that ought to be a call to arms. The, the enemy is plucking away our kids from our midst, and it ought to be a call to arms to all of us. It's interesting to contrast that with some other statistics. I read an article recently about the Amish community. Very interesting. Did you know that the Amish community is one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing communities anywhere in America? Did you know that uh, this, whereas we're losing the vast majority of our kids, they keep the vast majority of their kids? This particular article said four out of five young Amish people when they reach the age of when they can make a decision. And if you know anything about the Amish faith, you know that there comes a time in their teenage years where they're given that choice. Go out and make a decision. Go out, see the world, and decide. Four out of five of them come back. And four out of five of them decide to stay with the Amish community. As a matter of fact, this one article I read said that if the trend continues the way it is right now, the number of Amish communities in the United States will double in the next few years because of the fact that they are retaining so many. Think about that for a minute. Children in a community where they are required to undergo rigorous religious training, where fun is clearly secondary to work. None of us who have driven through Amish country would deny that. Where fun is clearly secondary to work. Where old-fashioned morality is hammered into their heads. They want to stay. But kids who are raised in our evangelical churches, where we have every kind of program to cater to every whim, where we give them every kind of game, every kind of funsy thing we can think of to keep them attracted and, and, and interested, are leaving in droves. And so one of the reasons, and this is what Paul or Phil was talking about last week, was the fact that we need to change some things. Because what we're doing is obviously not always working. I read a similar article this week about Mormonism. It was entitled, Six Reasons Why Mormons Are Beating Evangelicals in Church Growth. I won't read you the article, I'll just give you the six reasons. Here they are. Six reasons listed in that article. Number one, Mormons have bigger families. Well, that's, that's not really a fair one, but that's one of the reasons. Mormons have lower divorce rates. That's a valid one. Mormons share their faith. That's a convicting one. Mormons are orthodox. And now I have to explain that one because we've got to be careful with that one. The, the author of the article was not meaning at all that Mormonism is consistent with biblical Christianity because it is not. It is not. What he did mean is that Mormons, by and large, know what they believe and practice what they believe. And their kids know what they believe. They all have the same belief. They're orthodox. Number five, Mormon leaders ask a lot of their members. That one's interesting. Number six, Mormons are less selfish. Less selfish. I'll leave you to think through the implications of those six. It's a very interesting list. If anybody wants to read the article, I'll be glad to share it with you. But uh, you think it through. Apply it to the evangelical church in America. Apply it to here. But the point is, it shows us something, does it not? What we're doing is not working, but what these other groups are doing is. And so obviously we need to make some changes. The sad fact is that by and large, we in American churches are not doing too well in raising our children up to follow Christ as adults. And so we're tweaking. We're making some changes. Albert Einstein, I believe, is the one who said, one definition of, of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting a different result each time. And so if it's not working, we need to look at it and we need to make some changes. It is our desire, it is our prayer that the children of Friendship Bible Church rise above the national average. That they come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, their Lord. Not just as something their parents hammered into their head, but something that they believe deeply, their Savior. 
something that when they mature into adults, they'll tell others. And then their children will tell others. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6. That is our desire. So I believe this morning that this particular passage we looked at is something that might help us along these lines. So let's look at it again. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse number 6. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I want us to look at this, and I want us to use three words to kind of organize our thinking as we look at this passage today. Number one is the word responsibility. Number two, the word methodology. And number three, I couldn't think of an ology word. Number three is consequences. So responsibility, methodology, consequences. First of all, that word responsibility. Okay, I've made a big long time up here. I spent a lot of time describing the fact that we're messing up as a church, as churches in America, and we're not reaching our kids. Well, now I want to say something that might sound a little bit contradictory to that, uh, and that is this. It's not the church's job anyway. It's not the church's job to raise children for the glory of God. It's not the church's job. The church plays a role, and as a matter of fact, we're going to talk about that next week. That's the whole purpose of next week's message is this, this week is what's a parent to do. Next week is what role does the church play? So I hope you won't tune me out completely. I hope you come back next week and hear that part, because that part's important too. That's vitally important, and it really explains what we're trying to do. But the primary role, the primary role for raising our children to be champions for Christ is, uh, is something that falls to the parents. Parents. The church is here to help, but the parents are the ones who hold the responsibility. Let me ask you a question of the English majors who are among you. And now I may get myself in trouble here because I'm not an English major. And I may be saying this wrong, but I don't think so. If you look at, uh, at, the, at just the, the sentence there, train up a child in the way he should go. And you were to diagram that sentence, English majors. What is the subject of that sentence? Train up a child in the way he should go. What's the subject of that sentence? Somebody tell me. You. Thank you. Who said that? Thank you. We are, we are so happy to have Joanna Dick with us this morning. Joanna Dick Lilly. They are old. I don't mean old in that way. They, they, they were members of Randolph Christian Church when I was a little kid, and we're just so happy to have them back here. Joanna actually went to Israel with us one time in one of our previous trips. So nice to have them here. Yes, you. You is the implied subject of that sentence, is it not? You. Train up a child in the way he should go. And the fact is, if we were to compare this verse with the rest of Scripture, we quickly are going to find out who that you is, and that you is parents. Because every place that we see in the Bible where responsibility is given for the raising of children, it falls to parents. Parents are the front line when it comes to raising children. Grandparents are mentioned also, by the way, those of you who are grandmas and grandpas here. They're also mentioned, if we would go to, uh, where is it at here? Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 5, where... Uh, Timothy's grandmother was given some credit in the thing, but primarily as parents. That's what Deuteronomy 6 says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 through 7. It's also what Psalm 78 says. He established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And so the responsibility to ensure that our children grow up with a faith that is real and a faith that lasts and that they choose for the rest of their lives doesn't fall to the church. 
falls to the parents. It falls to the parents. And therefore, parenting is job one. This past week, I, I had to sit through a meeting at my place of employment. Most of you know that I work at Hiram College, and every year, some people seem to get out of these kind of meetings, but every year, we have a college assembly at the beginning of the year, and they introduce all the new hires. And whenever they introduce all the new hires, they really talk them up about all their experiences and their qualifications and all this. So I'm sitting there listening to this, and this one young lady was being introduced. I don't remember what department she's working in, but she was being introduced. And her supervisor was just extolling all of this, this wonderful experience she had and all these great things and all of her accomplishments. And she just went on and on and on. It was a big long list. And then, at the end of it, she said, and I know she was being tongue-in-cheek, but she said, Oh, and in her spare time, she's the mother of three. And I know she was joking. I know she was. If anybody from my place of employment listens to this particular thing online, I know she was joking. But nonetheless, it made me think. And doesn't it make us all think? That sometimes that's the way we view child rearing. As a spare time activity. And with the entire world aligned against our efforts to teach our children the things of God, is that the way it ought to be? No, we have to see it as job one. We have to see it that if we as parents don't do it, nobody else will. We cannot rely on our church. We cannot rely on our schools. We certainly cannot do that. We cannot rely on the television to raise our children. It is job one for the parents. And if they don't do it, nobody else will. Galadriel. Galadriel in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings once said to Frodo Baggins. She said, and I quote, This task was appointed to you, Frodo Baggins. And if you don't find a way, no one will. That's certainly true of parenting. It's our job. And so the first thought this morning is implied in our text. You, parents, have the responsibility. That's the first. Let's look at the second word. The second word is methodology. Methodology. So, okay, we have the responsibility as parents. What is our responsibility? What are we supposed to do? And then we see that right here, don't we? What is the word? Train up a child. In the way he should go. Train. Now there are a couple things that come to mind from that word. There's, there's a primary meaning certainly to the word. The Hebrew word which is translated train in our Bibles is. And I admit I don't know Hebrew so I'm not, I have no idea how to pronounce this. But it's the word hanach. Probably has a in there somewhere. Hanach. Something like that. I don't know. That's the word. And it literally means dedicate. Dedicate. And as a matter of fact, it's only used a couple other times, I think three other times in the Bible, and it always refers to the idea of dedicating something to God. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 5, the officers shall speak to the people saying, what man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? That's Hanak, same word. Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicated. In 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 63, Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord. 22,000 bulls, 120,000 sheep, so the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. Same word. One more time, Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 5, King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep, so the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. I read one source that indicated that in Maccabean times, uh, the festival of Hanukkah was introduced. The festival of Hanukkah was introduced to celebrate the rededication of the temple following its desecration by Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And so Hanukkah comes from that same word. Dedication. Dedicate. We have an example of this, don't we, in the Old Testament? We have an example of a mother who dedicated her child to God. That was Hannah. Remember the story of Hannah? 
Hannah was barren. Hannah couldn't have a child and she prayed. And here was a, a part of her prayer. She made a vow and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. That's dedication. I will dedicate him to you. And so the first thing as we think about methodology here, about what parents are supposed to do is, we need to ask that question. Have we dedicated our children to the Lord? Mom, Dad, have you dedicated your kids to the Lord? Maybe more importantly, have you dedicated yourself to the task of raising them for the glory of God? We don't practice infant baptism here, and we never will, as long as I'm here, because I think it's an unscriptural thing, and I think it distorts the Bible teaching on baptism. But we do practice baby dedication. And we encourage it. Encourage it. When a mom and dad stand before their church family and they hold that child and they say, I dedicate myself to raise this child for the glory of God. I dedicate this child to the glory of God. And when they hear their church say in response, then we dedicate ourselves to assist in that task. It's a glorious thing. It's a wonderful thing. And so dedication is part of the methodology. We need to dedicate our kids to the Lord. We need to dedicate ourselves to the task. But there's another interpretation that I've seen here for this word, and perhaps you've heard this one before, that word train. This is probably more of an application of the word train, but uh, basically it is that it means to hedge them in, build boundaries around them, guide their way, point them in the right direction. And so I would suggest to you that it speaks to the matter of rules. It speaks to the matter of having standards of behavior. It speaks to defining and explaining and consistently enforcing a particular expectation of what you expect out of your children. Kids need to know mom or dad mean what they say. They need to know that. They need to know mom and dad are of the same mind on these things. They need to know that once they've said it once, there's going to be trouble. They need to know these things. I hesitate to give personal examples in areas like this. Why are we laughing? I, I hesitate to give personal examples for a very serious reason. I mean, my kids are here this morning, and I thank the Lord for that more than you'll ever know. But they are here this morning not because of some greatness in me as a father. They are here this morning, no doubt, in spite of that. They are wonders of the grace of God. But, nonetheless, I'll venture a couple of examples that might be entertaining. You know, there were only a few things in our house that were end-of-the-world transgressions. There were a few of those things. For example, lying was an end-of-the-world transgression. Saying no. I am astonished at how many times I hear children say no to their parents and the parents just smile it off. <laughs> We never smiled about that. That was not something that was allowed in our house. And disrespect was one of them. You don't show disrespect to your parents in any way, shape. And they learned early on. They learned early, early, early that there was going to be hell to pay if they chose to violate one of those particular offenses. Because we believed we had to establish boundaries, rules that hedged in our children, protected them, taught them, trained them. Did they test those boundaries? Yes, they did. Many times. Many times. And did we follow through? Yes, we did. And did we warm their backsides? 
Yes, we did. We had a paddle in our home. Matter of fact, I think we still have that paddle somewhere. Did we finally get rid of that paddle? Oh. They took it and hit it somewhere. Our paddle even had a name. Amy didn't remember the name. Do you remember the name, Josh? <laughs> I cannot believe the kids have forgotten the name of the paddle. One of them named it. The name of the paddle was Leroy Ugly. <laughs> I didn't come up with that. They come up with that. This saw some use. Parents, if you don't have a paddle, you need to get one. Forget the nonsense of the world. Forget it. Who are you going to believe? Fool, psychologist, or God? Believe what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says. It says, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. You have to have boundaries. You have to have boundaries. Will they test them? Of course. We did, and so will they. Will they test them in public? Absolutely, because they're smart enough to think that, hey, we're out in public and I can get away with something now. Until the first time you take them quietly by the hand and take them off someplace quiet and correct that misconception. They have to know that the boundaries cannot be pushed. I remember when I was attending Midwestern Baptist College, we used to attend a church that was associated with that. It was Emmanuel Baptist Church. It was a big church in Pontiac, Michigan, which sadly now is almost no longer there. But nonetheless, when we were there, it was a big church. had a huge auditorium. I don't remember how many hundreds, a couple thousand, I think, it seated. And then it had a huge balcony up top, and that balcony was where the kids would sit. Well, Tom Malone Sr. was the pastor. Tommy Malone was his son. And Tommy Malone, when we were up there, was the assistant pastor of the church. He was grown at this time, but he was telling the story of a time when he was a child. And he was sitting up in that balcony, and he was cutting up and carrying on like he ought not to have done in church. And so he was carrying on, and as he was doing so, he said that he could just tell somebody was staring at him. You ever had that feeling? Eyes are just bored into your head somehow. And he said he looked down at his dad, who had now stopped preaching in the pulpit, and he was pointing at him like this, and he said, Tommy Malone, when we get home, you are getting a spanking. And he said, you cannot believe the horror of sitting there with thousands of people all knowing that was going to happen. And when he had to leave, All of those people watching as he got marched out of there knowing what was going to happen. And then that night, coming back for Sunday night service, everybody knowing what had happened. (laughs) Tremendous deterrent capability. We have to have boundaries. We have to have boundaries. Our kids learn to sit in church at an early age. Matter of fact, long before the 10-year-old limit that we've put on here for junior church. Boundaries. Boundaries. We could go on and on with that. But the fact is, Train up a child in the way he should go means, at least partially that, have boundaries. Hedge them in. Guide them on the path so that they'll know. Kids aren't going to be damaged by having to live under a system of Bible rules. That's nonsense. We hear that stuff too much in today's evangelical Christianity. Remember the examples of the Amish and the Mormons? It's not hurting them the slightest. Not at all. Talk about rules. And the kids are thriving under that kind of supervision. There will always be those who will grow up to adulthood and they will chafe even into adulthood about that. My parents made me go to church every Sunday. Amen. Glory to God. Why don't you thank the Lord for the fact you had parents who loved you that much. But there are always some, always some who just are bothered by that. But when we think about the fact that the parents who are doing what they ought to, according to Proverbs 22.6 and Ephesians 6.4 and Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Psalm, 7, Psalm chapter 78, 
Uh, we ought to thank God for that. I have a Facebook account. I'm not sure I'm, I should be ashamed to say that, but I do have one. And I, I don't really like Facebook, but I go out there and lurk and watch what other people are saying. So be careful what you're saying. I can see you out there. <laughs> but I, uh, was, I was listening in on a conversation or, that was being typed back and forth between some old friends that we knew. They were in a youth group when I was the assistant pastor in New Jersey. And uh, they were talking about the Bill Rice Ranch. Anybody ever hear of the Bill Rice Ranch? The Bill Rice Ranch was a, is it, I think it's still there, it's a Christian camp, like we send our kids to Camp Carl. Now that particular church sent their kids to Bill Rice Ranch. Well, this was a flaming fundamentalist camp. Kids had to wear, you know, very modest clothing. Girls had to wear dresses. Guys had to have their hair cut, like Keith. And they had to have, you know, all those kind of standards had to be in place. Um, and in this conversation, this was a bunch of these kids who were now grown, who were looking back on that experience and talking about it. And some of them were saying, I can't believe they made us do that. Blah, blah, blah. Can't mean, believe they made us wear dresses. This one girl chimed in and she said, yeah, that seemed like it was a hard thing. But you know what? Now I'm a grown-up. And now I have kids of my own. And she said, I have to admit it didn't hurt me one bit. And I also have to admit, knowing myself, it undoubtedly kept me out of some things that I might have got into. So can we not thank the Lord for parents who will set boundaries? And can we not determine, if we are parents, that we will do so? We will do so. Well, responsibility, methodology, I'm going too long. Let me finish with consequences. Consequences. I found something interesting in my study, and I don't see it here in this particular Bible that I've got in front of me. But in one of my Bibles, I noticed that verses 5 and 6 were lumped together. I didn't find that in any other, just one particular Bible. You know, Proverbs is, for the most part, each verse is an individual topic. Each verse is a discrete thought. But once in a while in Proverbs, you'll find that the thought spans more than one verse. And therefore, in some of our more modern translations, they've tried to group those together so that you can see that when you're looking at the book. Well, like I say, in this one particular one, verse 5, for some reason, was grouped with verse 6. Look at verse 5. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards his soul will be far from them. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I can't be at all adamant that those two verses are saying the same thing, but I, or are on the same topic, but we can say this, can we not? They're both talking about the way. They're both talking about the way. One is talking about the wrong way. One is talking about the right way. I think that Brother Phil last week mentioned the fact that Proverbs almost entirely is talking about that. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. One person said there's only two ways that a person can go, according to Proverbs. The way of the wise or righteousness and the way of the fool. One takes training and the other does not. And so when we consider that truth, we can't help but see the implication, can we, in our text? There is a consequence to whether or not we train up our children in the way they should go. What we do has grave implications to whether they will walk in the way of God or the way of the world, in the way of wisdom or the way of the fool. We almost always hear Proverbs 22, 6 described positively. If we train up our children right, they'll turn out right. Isn't that the way we usually do it? But we could state it another way, could we not? If we train up our children wrong, they'll most likely turn out wrong. As a matter of fact, that verse really is saying however you train your child. That's how they're most likely 
going to turn out. One person even quoted or, or uh, interprets this verse in a negative way in a book on Proverbs that he wrote. He said, train a child according to his evil inclinations. In other words, let him have his will and he will continue in his evil way throughout life. So there are consequences, mom and dad, to how we train our children. And what we must do is train them in the way they should go. So what is that way? What is the way they should go? Let me just mention four things here very, very quickly, and then I'll be done. What is the way that we should train them? Well, number one, we need to teach them, train them, that they are a wonderful and unique creation of the Holy God. If we do not teach our children in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, nobody will. Brother Phil talked about going today, to, or this past week, to the Creation Museum. Where are they going to hear that truth if they don't hear it from us? Teach them that they are a wonderful, unique creation of a holy God. Teach them that they are estranged from that God who loves them. But because of their sin, they are separated from him. Teach them, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Teach them that God sent his only son to take their place on the cross. To pay the price for their sin. To restore their relationship with the God who loves them. Teach them that he made him to be, who knew no sin to be sin for us. He made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, that's me, that's you, that's that child, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Teach them that their sin is so great Jesus had to die, but his love for them is so great that he wanted to die for them. Teach them these things. Teach them to turn from sin, to turn to God. Teach them to call upon the name of the Lord, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And be saved. That's the way in which we need to train them. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, probably this morning, parents are probably sitting here feeling like we've backed up a truck and dumped it upon them. And I imagine it could feel like that. But let me encourage you about something here this morning. Let me encourage you with two closing thoughts. First of all, even though I've spent the entire morning talking about how it's your job, and it is, Next week, we're going to talk about how the fact that God has given things to help. And one of those things is the church. One of those things is the church. And there is so much that God has given to help you parents. So you're not alone. You're not alone. Be encouraged by that. And then second, I would challenge you to see this verse for the wonderful encouragement it is. Look at what it says. It says, if we will but do our part, if we will train them up to the best of our ability in the way they should go, we have the assurance. I don't believe Proverbs are promises. I believe they're principles. But nonetheless, it is a principle. Praise God for it. That if we will do our part, God will do the rest. And they will not depart from it. And the rest of it, we leave up to the God who loves us and loves them far more than we could ever